excuse me, excuse me, why do I need to know this? That's a classic question that teachers get from their students. Why do I need to know this? And to be honest, it's actually always been a hard question for many educators because not everything taught in school always feels relevant even to the ones teaching it. And by the way, that was before the pandemic. Now there's a new kind of uncertainty about the future. So what do today's students need to know to be prepared for the world they're going to graduate into? And that goes for whether they're in K-12 or in college. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where each week we look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter and the managing editor of EdSurge, an award-winning nonprofit newsroom. So this topic of what students need to know, it's the subject of a new book by Stephanie Krauss. It's called Making It. And Krauss brings a unique mix of perspectives to the topic. She started off her career as a fifth grade teacher in Phoenix and was president of an educational foundation working for disconnected non-traditional students. Today, she's a senior advisor at Jobs for the Future and a staff consultant for the Youth Transition Founders Group. So it's pretty much her day job to ponder this question of what kids need to know. And she also identifies as one of those kids that was asking her teachers the question, why do I need to know this? Growing up in New Jersey, she was at one point a high school dropout with a tongue ring and a tough attitude. Her book is a bit unusual in that it's not asking kind of what academic curriculum's better or whether or not kids need to learn code. Instead, she takes this big step back and identifies what she sees as four cultural currencies that people need to learn, both for their future jobs and just to live happy lives. For her, those currencies are a mix of what she calls community, competencies, connections, and credentials. I connected with Krauss just the other day to talk about this framework and about how it was shaped by her own educational journey. Here's the interview. So I actually wanted to start with your personal story. You were not always someone that it sounds like teachers thought would was destined to make it. Um, it sounds like you you struggled and maybe even were a, a dropout in high school in New Jersey, I think you said, before someone, a caseworker, pointed you to college. I wondered what that personal experience, how much that has led you to do the work you're doing as an educator and now as somebody helping to help kids and, and policymakers think about the world ahead. I think my story is a, a critical anchor for me in all of the work that I do. And it's been interesting the question that sort of tees up the book itself is, you know, what actually is required to be ready for life? And that story does start with not only me, but um, with my four brothers. So I think one of the things interesting to know, Jeff, is that like the the context of how I got into education and into being an educator and school leader in schools was by leaving school. I grew up in a well-resourced community, although our family was not. Um, and so I experienced really deep inequality. At the time, I thought I was really poor, but I was poor in the context of a well-resourced community. So if you had put me into other communities that I've now lived in and been a part of, I wonder what my story would have looked like um, in that scenario. But for myself, I had an older brother who dropped out of school and he ended up not going on and getting a GED and he didn't go to college, but he became an extremely um, 
famous comedian and political pundit and slam poet. He was an artist and he's a great musician, um, but we didn't know it at the time. And so when he left school, this very small town sort of looked next down this row of five to me. And there was this very pervasive sense that I was very talented. I was a good student. I was a good athlete. And that wasn't it a shame that I was going to leave school too. And eventually I did. I just completely lived into um, that image of what I was supposed to be when I grew up. And um, what's I think striking about that is I ended up going and working at a small town New Jersey pizzeria. And I chose this need for cash, for income to help my family um, over what really didn't feel relevant. Even then at 15, it was very clear to me that high school couldn't answer the what's in it for me when I was looking at these really real life demands. Um, At the same time, when I eventually did end up in college, it was with a GED and I was only 16 and I had no high school experience. But for some reason, I had something. I had some set of some resources, internal, external, where I was able to do it. Um, and, and so that story over the years has now combined with the stories of my students and with others. So, you know, it's kind of this this collection of sorts of, you know, how folks make it in very different circumstances, but not according to that social contract that we've come to accept as the way things should happen. So, yeah, one of the questions that you you tackle in the book is, is college worth it? So the 15-year-old you was very dubious on is college worth it? Yeah, I think I was I was more dubious around, is high school worth it? I mean, I loved learning and I wanted a place where I could recreate who I was as a student without folks assuming who I would be um, as a graduate or non-graduate learner and what type of learner based on who I was, what family I came from. Um, and so I had this chance to start at community college, um, but then hopped really quickly to a college down in Florida. And it's interesting. Um, I don't talk about this very much, but it's a college that has Christian roots and that's important for a very specific reason. All of a sudden, my story flipped, and it went from um, a learning community who saw who I was as a liability to learning to a community with these sort of roots in someone's testimony or overcoming barriers. And it was this celebration of learning. Look what she's overcome to be here. I was newly sober. I was young. I had this GED. And there was this sense of having arrived. Um, And I thrived in that space and then accidentally graduated at 18 because I had no idea how many credits you're supposed to take in college. And so I just enrolled in everything I could. That's so interesting. And so if you don't mind, just like, so painting a picture of what you know it's really interesting that you're saying the the community in high school was looking on you as somebody that was kind of not going to make it or some somehow didn't fit in the academic picture why is that i mean i i mean what was it about your uh situation if you don't mind like that that made that you know 
kind of feeling? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's one my siblings and I think about a lot. When you go all the way down the five, when you get to the baby, he ended up at Harvard. He graduated valedictorian of that same high school in that same community, right? So we go from dropout, no GED to Harvard. And um, I do think in the context of growing up in a small community, there were the absolute gifts of being known um, and, you know, we could dig into that deeply, who mentored, who invested, who kept their doors unlocked, um, really being raised by family and community. At the same time, the underbelly of that was coming directly under somebody who had left school um, and the sort of knowing that small communities tend to have, whether through gossip or fact, on who you are and what family you're from and what's going on in your life, um, we were pretty relegated to like this, the, the service part of working, working in restaurants, teaching swimming classes, um, babysitting, you know, anything that was going to be part-time work. And so it it was a strong enough sense of, oh, you're from such and such family or, oh, you're so-and-so's sibling, that that really drove these micro decisions that teachers were making every day on my behalf, even though it wasn't what I was imagining for my own life, whether it was the way, and we see this play out. I have watched it play out in the schools where I've taught, in the schools that I have have been running, where um, folks presume who you are, or what you want. So there was a period in t- of time in high school where I wasn't living at home, where I was couch surfing and a runaway and kept clothes in the counselor's office and would go home for periods of time and leave. But it actually had no relationship to my desire to learn or what I was capable of. It was situational. It was the environment that I was in. And what I really needed was stability in schooling. It's, when we think about the pandemic this year, and the number of kids, for instance, who we know millions more faced housing instability this past year, whether it was on their own, like I was, or with their families. Um, I think finally the country is waking up to the connection between quality of living and quality of learning and how those two are so deeply related. I needed the quality of my learning experience to bump up in what it offered me when the quality of my living experience was in crisis. But instead, as my quality of living was going down, the the learning environment wasn't stepping up and stepping in, in in quite the way that I needed it. And and so that's where I ended up having to leave. So I'm really interested in your book, how you talk about, you know, you're kind of framing what do you need, what do kids need for tomorrow's world? And a lot of it deals with competencies mixed in with the things people may traditionally think of about around academic issues, right? Um, could you talk a little bit about what you mean by that and what the, you know, kind of the big picture takeaway is here. Absolutely. I've had the opportunity in the last eight years to be really deeply involved in competency-based education on both sides of the coin in the K-12 space and in higher ed. Um, The competencies tackled in making it are a little bit different than you might see in the competencies that we come up with when we're thinking about curriculum because they're not tied to 
predetermined academic standards. Instead, it was actually stepping back and saying, content knowledge aside, what are the things that young people must be able to do in order to navigate learning and work and adult life as they move forward? Um, And we can build and strengthen those competencies, things like the ability to focus and organize or to think critically and creatively, but also things like personal health, including like our cognitive health, our ability to unplug and plug into technology at will. And like, you know, for me, if I'm on Zoom for more than three hours, I get a migraine. (laughs) So the ability to like manage that space, um, where we can be intentional in learning experiences in classrooms and schools and even college settings at supporting the development of those things, but they can be developed anywhere. Um, So, you know, to kind of take you on that competency journey just very quickly, I think one of the things I was trying to really push for in making it is that we have our body systems that we put into play without even realizing it, but we know when something is wrong. So I know there's a relationship between how I'm breathing and my heart, and I see it and I'm more aware of it when I go for a run, or if for some reason my heart is racing and I'm holding my breath and that connection. So that's our, our way of functioning in the world. These competencies are our ways of being in the world, and they are as interdependent as your heart and your lungs or your heartbeat and your breath. My ability in a moment when I am tired or hungry or not healthy in some other way to focus or think creatively is deeply jeopardized. In a moment when I am rested and feel healthy and feel calm and feel like I'm able to manage my emotions, the learning is optimized. And so what I wanted to call out for folks kind of without relegating it to this is social emotional learning or this is competency-based education or this lives in health and wellness classes was instead to say like, We have these ways of being that are super interdependent that we can actually learn and develop and strengthen. And we have to, as parents, as educators with young people, but as adults, we also have to tend to these. Um, And they are what optimize our ability to show up and learn and create and do. And if we're not tending to them, we're going to be in we're going to be in big trouble. I think where it's important to think about our younger students is that that if we segment it and we say, okay, we're only going to tend to helping young people learn to focus and get organized or to self-regulate or think about their emotional lives from 9 to 10 on Tuesdays and Thursdays during during morning meeting when we're doing a social emotional learning lesson. Um or in a high school environment when they meet once a quarter with their advisor, it's not sufficient because it doesn't actually reflect how we do life every day. And can you, I, I noticed there are some specific examples or along the way as you, as you lay out your 10 um, competencies that, that, that you go through in the book. Um, and I'm wondering what are, can you give like one example that kind of brings it to life for people about 
that that people can think about as far as what you mean here and how you'd apply it? So let's stick with um, the ability to focus and organize since I used it earlier. Um, So how the book tackles that is, and this book is really written for um, anyone who's raising or working with young people of any age. There are implications if you've got little kids, but also if you're if you've got somebody who's getting ready to go to college right now or, or someone who is, you know, in between. Um, so what I talk about with the ability to focus and organize is, you know, first, what is it? I, I connected with a, an old friend, Cal Newport, who has written a lot on um, deep work, digital our digital lives, should we keep email or not? He just came out with a new book. And what we talked about was the cognitive demands on um, on kids and, and adults and how in this particular moment, it's even harder to focus and pay attention because we have information coming at us and the demands are everywhere. And so in terms of the strategies laid out in the book, Um, There are two pieces that you can find in that competency and everything else. One is the science of how does this actually work. So when we think about young people, very briefly, the part of the brain responsible for that, the front of the brain, it doesn't develop until your mid-20s. So kids need help. They actually need like bumpers (laughs) for the bowling of life, right? Like to to help them, they need some hacks. Um, and so a part of that then is, um, okay, so if we can understand young people are going to struggle with the ability to focus and stay organized, particularly if they're differently wired, if they have ADHD or anxiety or other things that are going on. And so then what can you do? And some of the strategies are, um, the good news is like they're free and, and fun. There are things like playing board games or watching a movie from start to finish. So you think about young kids today and the number of like video clips or TikToks that they listen to, and that actually rewires the brain and the ability to like pay attention for a prolonged period of time, which is so critical, uh, we get unwired for it. And so they actually have to like practice by watching a movie or like a full, in our house, my son likes baseball and we got him a transistor radio. So he doesn't have the visual of it. And he listens to the baseball game from start to finish. That's great. My, uh, <clears throat> my older son likes baseball too. And we try to do the same thing because he wants to multitask with every screen at the same time. Like it's, it's the draw of all that instant gratification everywhere, sensory overload. But you're saying by trying to, to kind of have these experiences of a more deep work as Cal Newport says, um, kind of experience will help kind of get that, that as something they understand as, as students or kids. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I would be remiss on an Ed Surge podcast, not to name that, like the technology was not designed to support their growth and development. It was designed for people to keep using it. Um, and so what we know is that tech can trigger the parts of the brain and highlight in in young people and adults alike a response that's actually up to two times as strong as a crack addiction. And that's not the topic of our conversation, but it is the reality of the lived experience of of our young people. Um, And so being able to practice downtime as this kind of counter 
is, you know, one of one of several strategies to think about, but it really deals with um, I think one of the things that's new and different about the book that I was hoping to bring to folks in a practical way is like in this particular moment in time, being grounded and accepting the realities for like how life is and what it's feeling like and looking like. No, it sounds like you put together this book even before the pandemic or started to, right? And then here we are in this really unprecedented time. Um, what do you feel like you've learned maybe in this time that you might um, kind of change or or how is, you know, what you wrote in the book? Like, how is there anything you would sort of uh, alter now that you've got, we've gone through this experience or anything you'd add? I feel deeply conflicted because... The book, the timing for the book is good, which I feel badly about because the timing right now is hard. So when I wrote the book, I've been out of the classroom and school for eight years. And this was really designed as my love letter back to the front lines. Like I wanted to get back to folks who are doing the educating and the counseling and the coaching and the raising of kids to say... God, the science and the realities of, of what is happening in the future, not only the future of learning and work, but like present day, like the future is now learning and work has changed. And here's the research that we don't have time to go find and, and think about. Certainly I didn't when I was in the classroom. Um, but there were things that I was worried wouldn't um, resonate. And then the pandemic happened. And suddenly they do. So I have a chapter dedicated to cash, which as educators, we don't talk about the relationship between how much cash and financial stability a student has and how well they can do in school and our responsibility in that and what we can as as an education community actually do much better and much differently in everything from completely overhauling and changing how we do financial aid to reflect real life, to direct cash assistance to students who need it and families, whether that's K-12 or higher ed. Um, And so when the pandemic happened, you know, everyone was primed to think more about cash because the struggle was real. And they were seeing the connection between how whoever the adults were in the household, their economic reality, how that played out into the learning experience of the students in the in the home, or if there were multiple generations of students and workers, what that looked like. Um, same thing for connections. There's an entire chapter dedicated to social relationships and the kinds of relationships you need. Um, and that doesn't take center stage when the conversations are around ed tech or project-based learning or anything else, or if it does, back to what we said with social-emotional learning, it's a segmented part. But I was lifting up in the foreword to the book, I said, you know, I set out to write a book on education and preparation, and I sort of am starting with this treatise on mental health and youth development. And if we don't figure those things out, then it's kind of a non-starter. And so I actually think 
one small blessing in the pandemic for me was was right timing that that folks are more um, inclined to listen to some of the things that come out in making it about connections, about cash, about um, in particular how do you make it in an unfair and unjust world, which was the purpose of this book. Um, and then I think to your question around like what different for me it's a question of what's next, um, and so I'm thinking really strongly about you know what is the book for young people themselves on what actually is the picture of college and career and life after high school and what do you need to know that you may not be getting from an advisor or counselor or that your parents aren't aware um, is something to think about. Everything from an 80-year career to what would it look like if you had a colleague that was AI or a robot to what do you do during periods when you're poor? So the same kinds of ideas, um, but not just for adults, for the young people themselves. It sounds like a book for your 16-year-old self, if you could go back in time and deliver it. You know, it's so interesting. I was just remembering the other day that I stole a um Bible from a bookstore in that small town growing up because I thought no one would ever get me one, which is, you know, maybe a separate conversation. But when I was talking about this book idea for young people, I thought, you know, what is the, if they were to steal the book from the bookstore, I mean, what is the one resource, the roadmap that they stick in their pack and it gives them some semblance of navigational instruction? We can't predict what's going to happen, but there was no good book to tell a 16-year-old with a GED how to, how to think about college, how to pay for it, how, what is an apprenticeship, what is a micro-credential. I mean, things are a lot different than when you and I were in school. But um, yeah, there wasn't that one book for sure. I don't know that one book can do all things, but that's what I'm thinking about next. <laughs> Well, we could go on and on, but this has been fascinating and I encourage people to check out the book. And thank you so much for sharing highlights today. Thanks, Jeff, so much. I appreciate it. It was really good to be here. This has been the EdSearch Podcast. Every Tuesday, we bring you a new episode. So please subscribe wherever you listen to keep up with what we're up to. And if you like the show, please take a minute to leave a rating or a review. That helps others find the show. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on Twitter at J.R. Young or on email at jeff at edsurge.com. If you know a fascinating person that we should interview or a story that we should tell on this podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out with your suggestions. Music this episode by Blue Dot Sessions, and it was found on the Free Music Archive under a Creative Commons license. The track is called Low Margin. We'll be back next week with more about how education is changing. Thanks for listening, and be well.